Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. I want to take a quick moment to welcome in our online family. I just looked and I saw that we have Andrew, Eric, and Jordan all worshiping with us online right now. So if you are on site today, would you put your hands together? Get loud. Welcome in our online family. Let them know that we're glad they're joining us as well. And thank you for being here again for the second week. We've had three services on site, which is just crazy. Last Sunday, we had our second largest attendance for 2023. The only attendance that was larger was Easter Sunday. How cool is that? And so it was awesome to have so many people here. And thank you for continuing to build up each service, invite people to come and make more room for more followers of Jesus. God is doing some incredible stuff in this place. I just love our church family so much. If you are new, my name's Chad. Welcome. Hopefully we can get you plugged in and answer any questions you might have. We're just glad that you chose to worship with us. And we are two weeks away from our annual Your Invited series. And I cannot wait for this. This is exciting every single year because this is a special opportunity for you to invite friends and family members, neighbors, coworkers, whoever, to come to church. And we've got something extra special every single week during Your Invited. Like the first week is our tailgate Sunday and everybody wears their favorite team gear or colors or jerseys, whatever. People even bring like flags and they paint their faces and all that kind of stuff. And we'll have snacks and games and all sorts of cool stuff on that day. And then the second week is our cookout Sunday. So we've got free food. We're going to cook on the grill for everybody. So come and eat with us as well as worship. And on that day, it is our free t-shirt day. We are passing out t-shirts to everybody who shows up to church that Sunday. And it's not this t-shirt that I'm wearing. I'm going to talk about this here in just a second. It is a brand new first church shirt. You haven't seen it yet. It's going to be awesome. So make sure you're here for that. September the 10th is our Star Wars Sunday. September the 17th is our State Fair Sunday. Got extra special stuff planned for each of those weeks. So if you want to volunteer to help make one or more of those weeks happen, we need a ton of volunteers. You can scan this QR code right here or see somebody wearing one of the light blue shirts like I'm wearing right now. It says you're invited. We've got staff today wearing these shirts and they are ready to answer any questions that you might have. So just stop by and see them. They'll talk about you're invited. They'll get you signed up. But we need volunteers to help make the, these four weeks happen. And I'm excited about it because I know this is going to be another opportunity to share the love of Jesus with more and more people. But I'm also pumped about today because this is week two of our series, We Are First Church. And we take time every single fall to just hit pause and to reaffirm our mission and make sure that we are the church that God wants us to be. And I love taking time to do this. Last week, my family went to an FC Tulsa soccer game. That's Tulsa's professional soccer team. And we've gone to four or five games this season, love going. My kids always have a blast. But this past time, my son, Alex, who's 10, he brought some friends with them. And so here they are after the game. They, are, they went down and met some of the players, which was awesome. I mean, they had a fun time, but this was not where our seats were. Our seats or maybe our tickets, you might say, were actually in the lawn area because one, it's cheaper to set out in the lawn, but also the kids can play out there. And so while the game was going on, like my son and his friends, my daughter, well, some other kids, they were kicking a soccer ball around. Like they were having their own soccer game while the big soccer game was going on. And they were just having an absolute blast. So I I was kind of watching the main game. I was watching them too as they were playing out in the lawn area. 
And as I was watching, I noticed that there was this older girl, like two or three years older than my son, who came up and wanted to boss all the kids that were around there and tell them like how to play and what to do and what they were doing wrong. And so she was being kind of bossy. You could tell, even though I didn't know what she was saying, you could just tell by the way that she was like pointing her finger and trying to tell the kids what to do. And so nothing really happened, but I knew that my son and his friends were kind of annoyed at this girl, by this girl. And so after the game was done, we were on the way home and I asked him and his buddies, I was like, so who was that older girl that was coming up and talking to you? And they just started in. They were just like, she was so annoying. She was so awful. I mean, she was telling us we were kicking the ball wrong and that we didn't know how to play soccer and she knew more than we did. She was just going on and on and trying to tell us what to do. And they just kept complaining about her. And about that time, one of my friend, one of my son's friends said, yeah, I was ready to punch her in the face. And I was just like, as a dad, I was thinking, no, 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 we don't do that. So, and I was getting ready to say that, but before I could, my son Alex spoke up and he said, no, we're not supposed to hit girls. And I thought, you know, Chivalry's not dead. You know, I was kind of, I was proud of my son for saying that in that moment. And um, so he's like, you know, we don't hit girls. And my son's friend responded by saying, well, you can if she hits you three times. And I was like, what? I haven't heard that one before, all right. And we all kind of had, I guess, a puzzled look on our face and my son's friend goes, yeah, if a girl hits you three times, you have the right to hit her back. It's in the Bible. And I'm just thinking, okay. And then he said to me, isn't that right, Chad? And so I responded by saying, no, buddy, I don't think that is in the Bible, actually. And then he said, oh, what do you know anyway? And so I thought, well, I guess apparently you little nine-year-old know more about the Bible than I do, but that's all right. You know, sometimes... Just because we think we're right about something doesn't mean we are. And just because somebody tells us that something is right doesn't mean that it is. Now, that's the case when it comes to a lot of things in life, but that's especially the case when it comes to God. Because there are a lot of false ideas and misconceptions about God floating around in our culture today that simply aren't true. And that's why the Bible gives us this warning. My dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. The Bible is saying just because somebody talks a lot about God, just because somebody says God wants you to do this, doesn't mean that they know what they're talking about. So what do we do then? I mean, we need to listen to this warning, but what do we do? How do we make sure that our lives are in line with what God wants? How do we make sure our church is doing what God wants us to do? Well, we just wanna let you know that here at First Church, we're a church that goes back to the source and God has given us his inspired word, the Bible, so that we can know his will for life. And we wanna make sure that everything we do and say aligns with what God's word says. That's why Paul says to Timothy, he says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We wanna make sure that everything we do, everything we say, everything we teach, every program we offer, our mission statement, our vision for this church, we wanna make sure that everything lines up with what God wants for us. Because we know if we're not careful, we will tend to drift. We will veer, we'll get distracted, and we'll go off the path that God wants us to take. 
Let me ask, for those of you who have driver's license, who are legal to drive, have you ever been driving on the road and all of a sudden you get distracted? Like maybe you're on your phone and you shouldn't be, or you've got a kid in the back seat who's banging on your chair, or maybe there's a kid in the back seat who says, daddy, I lost something. And so you're like reaching in the back, trying to find it for them while you're still driving, you know? Not that that has ever happened to me, but let's say it did, you know? Or maybe as you're driving, you got somebody in the passenger seat who's just talking your head off, or there's something going on outside that is distracting you, or maybe you're getting a little tired or sleepy, whatever. Whatever the reason, you get distracted and you start to veer just a little bit off the road and you hear this sound. Anybody know what that sound is? It's not a boat, okay? Anybody know what that sound is? We're gonna hear it again here. Yeah, it's a rumble strip, right? They have these on the side of the road so that if you start to veer, you start to drift and go off the road, this will wake you up and you will know that you're going off the road. Now, I find these things really, really annoying, actually, because every time that I hit one, my wife gives me the evil eye. I mean, she stares at me, and I can feel her staring at me without even looking at her, because she's like, why aren't you paying attention? Why are you distracted? Sometimes I feel her staring at me when I hit a rumble strip, and she's not even in the car with me. I just know that somewhere out there, she knows that I hit a rumble strip, and she's letting me have it, okay? I don't really care for these things. They're annoying, but I do know that they're for my good and therefore your good. They save lives, actually. And let me just ask by a show of hands, if you can drive, if you do have a driver's license, if you're online right now, you can put this in the chat. How many of you have ever accidentally, unintentionally ran over a rumble strip? Let me just see your hands, okay. And for those of you who aren't raising your hands, you need to go back and read the 10 commandments or something because we all have, haven't we? And I think all those hands just prove my point. We have a tendency, if we're not careful, if we're not paying attention, to drift, to veer. And that can happen in our own spiritual lives and it can happen in the church as well. And that's why I think this series, We Are First Church is so important because it allows us to refocus and make sure that we're on the path that God wants us to take. I love our mission statement here. It's love Jesus, love light Jesus. You've heard it before. It's five simple words, two statements, but it's based off of what Jesus calls the greatest two commandments, to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says that all of God's law, all of his commandments hang on these two commandments. In other words, this is our foundation. If you're not doing this, then it doesn't matter what else you do. Everything that we do should flow from these two commands, to love Jesus with everything we have and to love like him in this world. And I love that language, love like Jesus. Because as I said last week, it just reminds us that in order to do that, we have to live like Jesus. Our goal here at First Church isn't just to be a crowd that comes together and like sing songs and gets excited or whatever. Our, our goal is to be a community that actually looks more and more like Jesus as we live in daily life. Now, we're not gonna be perfect. It's not that we're not gonna have setbacks and mess up. We all need God's grace every single day. We're not perfect at this, but this is our goal, to be a community that reflects the character of Jesus more and more every single day. And this is what we're called to do. In 1 John, it says this. It says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In other words, it's not enough just to come together and be a crowd that likes Jesus. We've got to walk like him. We've got to live like him. Whoever claims to be one of his followers needs to have it as their goal to walk as he walked. 
And so if we're gonna change the world by living a different type of life, the Jesus-shaped way of life, then we've gotta be growing to look more and more like him. And one way that we grow to look more and more like him is by surrounding ourselves with the right community. Because the Bible also teaches that growth happens when we surround ourselves with the right community, with the right people. That's why the book of Proverbs gives us this piece of wisdom in Proverbs 27. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We need one another. Your life doesn't just affect you. Your life affects the people around you. And the people that you surround yourself with, they rub off. They affect you as well. And so if our mission is to live more like Jesus, then we must help one another do life with Jesus. We seek to be a community that helps one another get closer to him. It's one of the reasons why we are here. And that's so important. And there's a passage in the New Testament in Mark chapter two that gives us an example and an illustration of why that is so important. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me, Mark chapter two, and that's where we're gonna be camped out today. And this is a story you may have heard before if you've grown up in church, but if you're new to church, it might be brand new to you. Either way, I think there's something that we can learn from it. Now, if you did grow up in church, you probably know that Jesus was born in the little town of Bethlehem. But then he was raised as a child in the small village called Nazareth. But as an adult, Jesus lived in a town called Capernaum. That was his hometown, his home base. Now he traveled around and taught different places, but Capernaum was his home base. And as we get to Mark chapter two, what we discover is Jesus is coming back home to Capernaum. The Bible says this. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. So what's going on here is Jesus has started his public teaching and preaching ministry. And people from all over are coming to hear him. He's drawing huge crowds. So much so that Mark chapter one tells us that at times Jesus tried to get away from the crowds and go to a secluded place and the crowds would follow him. Why? He's teaching things people never heard before. He's introducing people to God in a way like they had never experienced before. He's doing miracles people had never witnessed before. And people can't get enough of Jesus. So when Jesus comes back to his hometown, Capernaum, everybody who's there wants to see him. He's become a local celebrity. And so Jesus is staying in a certain house. And while he's there, anybody who's anybody wants to hear him teach, wants to possibly see him do a miracle. The house is packed full of people, anybody who's anybody is there. But what we find out is that there is a nobody who wants to get in to see Jesus who no one will let in. Let's read on. While he was preaching, while Jesus was preaching, God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Now, like I said, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this passage before. It's one of those classic stories that they tell like in children's church or vacation Bible school. But if you're new to church and you've never heard this passage before, you might be thinking, 
What, these guys did what? Yeah, they did exactly what the text said that they did. This is kind of crazy, this is kind of insane. Basically what's going on is you've got some friends who have a buddy who's paralyzed, who can't walk. And we don't know a whole lot about this man, but he's unable to take care of himself. And so his friends take him to Jesus. They carry him to the house where Jesus is staying. And they get there and it's so packed that they can't get in to see Jesus, even though that's what their friend needs. They want Jesus to do a miracle for their friend. They want Jesus to heal this man's legs. And so they can't get into the house. And so what they do is they turn to one another and one guy says, hey, I got an idea. That guy's name was probably Bubba. Bubba turns to the rest of them and he says, I got an idea. Let's go up and cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. And so that's what they do. Now, in this day and age, roofs were made of like clay and dirt and straw and some netting. And so you could literally dig a hole in the roof, like the text says, and they did that. And then they lowered their buddy down. Now, just think about if you were in the room at that moment. I mean, think about being Jesus and you're in the middle of a sermon. And all of a sudden you're interrupted with like dirt falling from the ceiling. And then all of a sudden a grown man is being lowered, you know, into the room. What if you're one of the people listening? What if you were the teachers of the law, the Pharisees who were there, who were kind of, you know, like uptight, like what is happening? What if you were the owner of the house thinking, wait a second, I didn't order that skylight. You know, what is going on right now? This is a weird, weird scene. Maybe this is a familiar text to you, but don't lose sight of just how crazy it is. I mean, this would be like, let's say you wanna to go to a sold out concert. I don't know, like Taylor Swift. I know she typically doesn't sell out concerts, but let's pretend that she does, okay? So let's say you wanna to go to a Taylor Swift concert and it's sold out and you're online, you know, you're on Ticketmaster or whatever, trying to get a ticket and Ticketmaster blows up because so many people are on it. Like I said, this is hypothetical, it would never really happen. But let's say that you're unable to get a ticket and you're really bummed, but you have a friend whose name is Bubba, and Bubba turns to you and says, hey, I got an idea. You don't need a ticket. We'll just go climb on top of the arena where Taylor Swift is performing, and we'll cut a hole in the roof, and we'll lower ourselves down so that we can see her live in concert. Now, can you say jail time, right? I mean, that is not going to end well, is it? And you may be the biggest Swifty out there, but from that point on, between you and Taylor Swift, there's gonna be bad blood. Uh, you get what I did there? Sorry, bad blood. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know. But that's okay. Just shake it off afterwards. You'll be fine. Okay, I'll stop with the Taylor Swift jokes. Haters gonna hate. But anyway, uh, we'll move on. That would never happen. So don't read this passage and think, oh, that was like 2,000 years ago. So, you know, stuff like that happened all the time. It didn't, okay? It was just as weird back then as it is today. And yet, these friends did this for their buddy, why? Because they put themselves on the mat with him and they knew what he needed and they were willing to do whatever it took to get him to Jesus. So don't get so caught up in all the craziness or your familiarity with this passage that you miss why it's in here because there's some stuff that this passage wants to teach us. Like for instance, have you ever asked this question? Why wouldn't the crowd let this man in to see Jesus? You might be thinking, well, because you know, it was crowded. He couldn't get in because there's no room. Okay, I get that, but let's take that a little bit deeper. Remember, Capernaum was a small town. Maybe 1,500 people lived there in the time of Jesus. Small town. Everybody knew one another. So when these men showed up, people in the house would have known the paralyzed man. They would have recognized him. They would have known his parents. They would have known his family. People in the house would have known these four friends. They would have recognized them. They would have known their families. 
and yet no one lets them in. Isn't that a little odd? In Luke's gospel, when he talks about this event, Luke gives us this detail. It says, but when they did not find any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. And that phrase there, did not find any way, lets us know in the Greek that they tried multiple ways to get in the house. In other words, it's not like that these friends just got their paralyzed friend to the house and it was packed and they said, okay, we're going up on the roof right away. That's not how it worked. They got there and they tried every other possible way to get in the house. They tried to talk to people. They tried to ask people to make room. They looked through windows. They probably went to see if there was a back door. They tried every possible way to get in the house and when nothing else would work, they said, let's take him up to the roof. Now, let's say something like this happened in our day and age and we were in a packed room and all of a sudden somebody came around who was in a wheelchair. Wouldn't you make room for them? I would. What's going on here? Why is it that nobody will make room for this guy? Well, the answer is because they all see him as a nobody. See, what if it had been a Pharisee that had been running late or a teacher of the law or maybe one of the government officials and they showed up late to the party? Don't you think people would have made room for them? I bet they would have. But this guy was considered a nobody to the crowd. That's how he had been made to feel his entire life. Because in this day and age, if you were physically disabled, that was considered a curse by God. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that, and we don't teach that here at First Church, but that's what people in this culture believed. They believed that if you were physically disabled, that was a curse by God either on you or your family. So people wanted to stay away from you because you had done something to deserve that. Not only that, if you were physically disabled like this man... Somebody had to always take care of you or you were left to beg your entire life in order to survive. What that meant is many people in this culture saw someone like this as a nuisance and they didn't have time for them. This person would not have been allowed to have been in the presence of elite company. This person would have been forced to live on the margins of society, would have been considered an outcast. This person on the mat was considered a nobody by those around him. And that's why they wouldn't let him in. And as sad as that is, I think what's even worse is what the crowd ends up becoming. The crowd who is there to seek Jesus ends up becoming a barrier, an obstacle themselves to someone else who needs Jesus. Think about that. Does that ever happen in the church today? where people on the inside become an obstacle to those on the outside who need Jesus. Hopefully it doesn't happen in our church, but it does happen where people on the inside create unnecessary, ungodly obstacles that get in the way of people on the outside seeking Jesus. The crowd has become an obstacle to one who needs Jesus. But what I love about this text is that Jesus has the power to turn obstacles into opportunities. And we see him doing this over and over and over again. And guys, I've seen him do this in my life over and over again. I don't know how many times I've been faced with some 
obstacle in front of me. And I think, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to get past this. And then I turn it over to God and God uses what I consider to be an obstacle into an opportunity to put his power on display. And then after the fact, I look back on the situation. I think I would have never seen God's power on display like that if it wasn't for that obstacle being there. Because God looks at obstacles and he sees opportunities to work. And that's what takes place here in this passage. When you read on in chapter two, it says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. So what's interesting is Jesus doesn't get mad that this dude interrupts his sermon. He doesn't get upset that these friends lowered the man down on the mat. Instead, Jesus turns to the man and he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. He forgives the sins. Now, if you were one of the friends that had gone to all the trouble to get your buddy there to see Jesus, I wonder if you might be thinking, hey, that's great and everything, Jesus. I'm so glad that you forgave his sins, but what about his legs, you know? I mean, we carried him all this way and he's heavy. He's a full grown man. We carried him all this way so that you would restore his legs. And that's great that you, you know, forgave him and everything, but can't you also heal his legs? We don't want to carry him back home today. Now, Jesus does care about this man's physical needs. He does have compassion on this man's physical situation and he will end up restoring the man's legs in this passage. But he forgives the man's sins first. Why? Well, because what we want the most is not always what we need the most. See, God knows what we need the most. And oftentimes what we want gets in the way of what we need, what God knows we need. Jesus knows that what this man needs more than anything is for his soul to be restored, for his sins to be forgiven, for him to be made right with God. And what Jesus here is going to do is he is going to address what everybody else doesn't want to talk about. And that's the issue of sin, because that's the whole reason why Jesus came. Listen to what God's word says. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why did Jesus come into the world? To take care of our sin problem. That's the primary reason why he came. It's not that God doesn't care about our physical state or our physical needs. He does. It's not that we shouldn't pray for physical healing. We should, I do. And I have seen people be physically healed by God. We should pray for those things. But what we need to understand is that physical healing is only a temporary miracle. You know why? Because all of us will eventually die. All of us will experience our bodies failing. Physical healing is just a temporary miracle and everybody who Jesus has ever healed eventually died. And so what we need to seek is the greatest miracle. And the greatest miracle is not having our physical needs met, but it's being restored to God. And that's what Jesus wants to emphasize in this moment. I care about your physical needs, but you don't realize yet what you need the most. And those of us who have experienced the greatest miracle, having our sins forgiven, we understand why it's the greatest miracle. Because we understand it's what we need more than anything else because one day we will have to face our eternity. And on that day, the only thing that's going to matter is if we have been made right before God. See, the greatest miracle 
is having your sins covered. The greatest miracle is having the cursed reversed in your life. The greatest miracle is having inner peace and inner joy and inner strength and inner comfort and contentment that this world can't offer you because you have an intimate relationship with the God who created you. The greatest miracle is knowing that death doesn't get the last word over your life. The greatest miracle is knowing that the one who lives in you, well, death answers to him. The greatest miracle is knowing that our Lord looked at Satan, our enemy, square in the face and said, your illegitimate reign will be short-lived. The greatest miracle is that God is restoring for himself a people through Jesus that will be his very own and his people will live forever, eternally with him in a new home where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no heartache, no stress, no anxiety, no sin. That's the greatest miracle when we live in the new heavens and the new earth with him. And Jesus doesn't want us to miss that. I once heard an old preacher say that if Jesus had restored this man's legs first, he would have been out the door before he could have restored his soul. <laughs> and I don't know if that's true, but isn't that how we live sometimes? God meet my physical needs and we're not focused on what matters the most. You see, people come to our church for multiple different reasons. And I don't really care why somebody comes to our church. I'm just glad they're here and they get to hear about the good news of Jesus. But I know people come for different reasons. And sometimes people come to our church because their marriage is falling apart and they want help. And so our church rallies around them and we give them support, encouragement, counseling, whatever they need. But in the process of them receiving all that help, what they discover is what they really need is Jesus. And Jesus ends up healing them. And because Jesus is now first in their lives, he restores their marriage. See, sometimes we have students that come to our church because they want to climb a mountain during youthquake. There's nothing wrong with that. That's cool. But while they're on the mountain, they discover the God who created the mountain. And they end up realizing that only he can satisfy them. Now, sometimes we have young families, young couples who come to church because they want their kids to have some type of moral compass and they feel like that the church will give them that. So they come to church for their kids and then they end up realizing how much they need Jesus and they need his direction and guidance in their lives. They come to church originally for the kids, but they realize how much they need it. See, the greatest miracle is having a restored relationship with Jesus. And Jesus honestly may not always give us everything that we want because sometimes what we want, he knows we don't need. But sometimes Jesus will change our situation. However, before he changes our situation, he needs to first change us so that we realize what's most important. Now, when Jesus forgives this man's sins, the Pharisees are ticked. They get upset. And they say, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And you know, the Pharisees get a lot wrong in the gospels, but they got this right. I mean, only God can forgive sins. And that's the whole point. Jesus is going to prove who he really is in this moment. And look at, how the, look at what the text says. Jesus says, so I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. See, I love this because what's going on? 
Jesus is proving in this moment that he is God in the flesh. And I want you to notice what he does. Jesus noticed a man that everybody else thought was a nobody. Jesus paid attention to someone who everyone else ignored. Jesus made time for someone that no one else would even let in the house. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is letting everyone there know this man matters to God. This man's life, his soul matters to God. God is paying attention to him. He wanted that man to know that. God was paying attention to him. And honestly, I think that man needed to hear that more than anything else. He needed to hear that everybody matters to God, even him. And I think that's what our culture needs to hear more than anything else today. Because that truth right there will do more good and has more power than any social program or political agenda or medical or scientific discovery can ever give us. Because that truth has eternal, can make eternal differences. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you've been made to feel like a nobody. But wherever you are today, you need to know this. You're somebody to God. Your life matters to him. You were created in his image. He loves you and you matter to him. And when the people saw this happen before their very eyes in Mark chapter two. You remember what they said? They said out loud, we've never seen anything like this before. The text says they were amazed. And you know, that's what I want people to experience when they're part of our church. When they come to one of our gatherings or they see our church in action in the community or whatever. I want people, when they experience our church, to say, we've never seen anything like this before because we are so much living like Jesus that it throws people. They think, what is this? These people have something that I don't have, that I'm missing. And they are amazed by the lifestyle that we live because we have a hope, we have a joy, we have a peace, a direction, a purpose that they don't have. I want for people to look at our church and say, man, I've never seen anything like that before. And the reason why the people on this day were able to say that. Did you notice? So we back up in the text. Did you notice why Jesus forgave the man's sins and ultimately and ends up then healing him? Notice what the text says. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't say seeing the man's faith, the paralyzed man's faith. Whose faith? Seeing their faith, the friend's faith. He then said to the man, get up, your sins are forgiven. See, never underestimate the reach of your faith. The reason why this guy experienced Jesus in this moment was because he had friends who refused to give up on him. Because he had friends who refused to leave him on the outside. He had friends who were willing to go the distance for him and make sacrifices for him and even get their hands dirty and make a mess in order to get him to Jesus. He had friends who were willing to do whatever it took to get him in the house with Jesus because they knew when Jesus is in the house, stuff happens. He had friends who were willing to put their faith in Jesus on display. Guys, hidden faith helps no one. And your life doesn't just affect you, it affects everyone around you. Faith that isn't visible isn't real faith. Real faith is hole in the roof kind of faith. 
hole in the roof kind of faith is a type of faith where you're willing to get your hands dirty, carry somebody's heavy load, make a sacrifice, even sacrifice your own reputation, where you're willing to go the extra mile, where you're willing to take advantage of an opportunity, where you don't sit on your hands, but you're willing to dig a hole in a roof in order to get somebody to Jesus. And I love being part of a hole in the roof kind of church. You know why we do You're Invited every single year? Some people from the outside from different churches look at us and say, isn't that a waste of resources and time and energy and all that? I mean, do you really need that? Is that really necessary? Yes, because it gets people to come hear the good news about Jesus and we're, in the, we're a hole in the roof kind of church. You know, sometimes people have questioned us in this building that we're doing right now because they'll say, you know, you started that in the midst of COVID and now it's a bad economy. Is it really the best time to do a children's building? Absolutely, because we want to invest in the next generation and time is of the essence and we're a hole in the roof kind of church. People even looked at us and said, really, you're gonna go on TV? Do people still watch local TV? Well, yeah, we're finding out that thousands every single week are hearing the good news of Jesus through our TV program. People have questioned that. Really, is that really worth the money? Yes, because we're a hole in the roof kind of church. I love being a part of a church that isn't afraid to wreck the roof in order to bring people to Jesus. And I believe that there are hole in the roof ideas and opportunities all around us today if we will just together have the same heart that says, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get my friends, those I love, those around me to Jesus. So let me ask you, who needs your faith today? Who needs your faith to be on display in their life today? Because right now there is somebody in your life who needs your faith. So who are you going to wreck the roof for? Let's be a church that doesn't sit on our hands, but a church that goes the distance in order to bring as many people as possible to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we've had to open up your word and study it. And we are first church and we know what you're calling us to do. You're calling us to be a hole in the roof kind of church. And we just pray that we continue to do that. Father, may other people come to know you because of our faith. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.